0: If I conjuncted for you uh, the word pleats, uh, with please, perhaps, you, you would immediately, I suspect, have a name pop into your head. Uh, we're talking about Issey Miyake, of course, the, the celebrated Japanese designer who died earlier this month. He was 84. In fashion, he was, was the designer's designer, his garments. He was a curious man. His garments, driven by the advances in, in textile science, but that clothing was was just a small part of his his overarching design philosophy. He did so much. He, he loosened the the Eurocentrism of the fashion world that he came into. Tokyo became a, a hub of the avant garde in fashion, and of course, there was a, a generation of of post war designers in his wake. Uh, Robin Healy sat in a a box seat during his rise. She was the National Gallery of Australia's inaugural curator of international fashion in the 1980s and later became senior curator of fashion and textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria. And these were institutions among the first in this country to collect Miyake's work. Uh, You can now find Robin at RMIT University, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Learning and Teaching and, and leading the School of Fashion and textiles. Robin, welcome.
1: Hi. Can you
0: remember your, your first brush with the work of Miyaki?
1: I can. And it actually was through a, a Melbourne magazine, Crowd Magazine. And Crowd Magazine was like a um, a very limited edition local publication that had a correspondent from Tokyo. Hmm. And it it was it was a very much like ID magazine. At that time, it was sort of a way to find out about a sort of an underground wave that was happening in design. Our crowd looked at a range of different things, not just fashion. And also in my role as a, a curator at the National Gallery of Australia, we were always looking at what was happening in contemporary design. So as we started to see what was bubbling up in that sort of period of the early 80s, it became very clear that there was this very strong movement coming out of Tokyo um, and a way of looking at fashion that, that wasn't something we were used to. It was clothing as design, and I think that's really the big departure and why perhaps mm-hmm. you know Miyake has been sought after um, in museums as well as, as, as being a, um, a wearable in, in many quarters.
0: How does that notion of, of, of clothing as design in, in his case, how does that differ from the haute couture of, of, of Europe? What's, what's the jumping off point?
1: I think the jumping up point is the way he approached the actual design process. And going back to your introduction about this sort of very Eurocentric way of of working, which went through a a process that was very much driven by um, dressmaking and tailoring techniques going back centuries. His idea was really like many designers, you know, looking at a material, a piece of cloth and building from that.
0: Mm.
1: He also looked at, you know, um, ways of wearing. So sort of looking at how could he make something that actually embraced a range of different people, whether it was from their age, from their gender, from where they might wear something. So he, he sort of took it on in a much more broader 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 scope. So, in traditional fashion design, you sort of get typecast, you know, you're a menswear designer, you're a womenswear designer, <laughs> you know, you go, it's evening wear, it's day wear, it's this, it's that, you know, you get the colour trends. Mm. He went through a very deep dive into research and using research as any designer would. So, looking both at advanced technologies and also at uh, traditional techniques. And then in the mix what might that become? He also was a collaborator. So rather than, you know, fashion designers have this big eye, you know, this big sort of, you know, rock star type, mm-hmm. type persona. <laughs> we can think of the names. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so for me, it's also like the team philosophy, the collaborators. So if you look at who collaborated with Issey Miyake, and also the studio he set up. So very much in tune with the design practice rather than the house of. Uh, rather there's a whole range of things that that became much more subtle but also in terms of uh, the impact of the clothing was continually inviting people in to collaborate, whether they were photographers, whether they were the people who designed the shops, whether they were people in the actual Miyake studio working with him. It's a
0: totality, isn't it? Yeah. Of, of, of course, I mean, to take that back a bit though, I mean, in the – in the 60s he he earnestly went about learning his craft
1: he did because like any any good practitioner you need to know what you're 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 moving against so it's a precedent in the field so once you start an area like he he began in a totally different field he began in a in an art university, you know, in graphic design. So for him to really depart and have this questioning of clothing, which was what he started to do in those early days, was to actually have to know the craft, to depart from the craft. And we see this in many cases with designers. To you to actually innovate, you need to understand, you know, the customary practice, and I think it was very clever that he did end up going to Paris to study in a, in a traditional haute couture-type environment. But also uh, a seminal moment for him was the 1968 uh, student demonstrations in Paris. Right. So it also sort of shifted this sort of moving away from, from what was the norm you know, what, what could he depart from? And I think that's where his early thinkings in, in Japan then grew even more intensely after those moments in Paris.
0: I, I wonder, though, if his, you know, his susceptibility to moment, does, does that date back to his his boyhood in Hiroshima? Is that, you know, there's a, a thing of, of historic crisis through his life?
1: There is. and And there's a very famous lecture that he gave that's quite moving in terms of, going back to where he, where he had been, where he was born and as a child, that experience. So I think this is this sort of thoughtfulness in trying, and, and fashion, fashion has the baggage of being exclusive when you look at something that has a certain price point. Mm. So Miyake was always trying to have this sort of clothing for everybody, this sort of community around the clothing. And that's where I think those seminal moments really wanted him to push further of what clothing could do. And, you know, he was always striving for that. Whether he was successful at that, who knows? But he had an intention for actually trying to look at it quite differently. And building this community for everybody.
0: But again, this, 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 I think, see, you know, it goes back to that that Hiroshima moment, surviving the the nuclear blast, and and having this this sense, I think, in his his clothing of, of, of hope, of optimism, that I think probably comes from that moment.
1: Absolutely, and I think I think when you see um, the impact of his work in in exhibition space, So going back to my own background in in curatorial practice you know, the way that he used those exhibition spaces, you know, public spaces that people could go in and and see the joy. I mean, uh, you know, some of his, you know, making things, the exhibitions, you know, that showed this incredible vitality uh, within pleats, within different types of garments and also making how things were made. Very much making people part of the performative part of all of that. So people could enjoy it through that as well. So I think that was also a very interesting aspect of his practice.
0: There you are in, uh, in, from 1982 is at the National Gallery of Australia, International Curator of Fashion. What was it about Miyake that you, you, you wanted to, to add him to the collection? What, what drew your eye there?
1: It was a moment. And like any, like any contemporary art collection, contemporary design collection, um, you capture that moment. Some, some of them will only last for a fleeting moment and others will be enduring. Miyake's work ended up being enduring. But when we saw that departure, I mean, fashion collections, you know, you can basically tell you what's in them you're going to have a Dior, you're going to have a this, you're going to have a that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so on. So you everyone will have one of those. You need a new look, you need a, you know, and so on. So to see something that really broke away from that um, and had this way that they could be combined in different ways, you know, some of them, the early ones didn't necessarily look, you know, like a, a glossy fashion garment. These were really earthy colours, natural dyes, shapes that wrapped around. It was very much about the materiality of them and this sort of layering and patterning um, and the, the light and shade. So, it had very much that Japanese aesthetic, those subtleties. So, for a lot of people seeing them in an exhibition space in those early examples, they didn't necessarily have that wham, bam sort of aspect to them. Some of the later works, when you get to like body works, which is perhaps one of the most famous ones in terms of what you see in museums, where you get the bustiers that are made um, of fibreglass, which have actually moulded the body. In that case, it was Lisa Lyons, the American um, bodybuilder. They stand as sculptures on their own. So in the early pieces, they were really about clothing on the body, and then Miyake moved away from that, and the garments could exist on their own. So they had these sort of multiple roles. So in an art gallery you could display them in multiple ways. So in the boutiques, they, they didn't need a clothes hanger because they weren't <laughs> Self-supporting. actually supporting. They weren't actually constructed <laughs> well, well even the sort of the coats, a lot of them weren't even constructed to go on a conventional clothing system. so they would be folded and put on shelves. So you get the most incredible aesthetic. So part of it was also this aesthetic. So when you look at the decorative arts and you start to see, you know, those sort of stellar people in, in, in um, sort of shifting practice, this was one of them because it also shifted what, what, what retail looked like in terms of this very clean look as you looked into a boutique with just these folded garments um, and a very different way of showing shape. So you could put them on a wall because you had these incredible, incredible shapes. You could hang them on a stick.
0: Made for gallery (laughs) exhibition.
1: Well, this is where, and it really challenged people because you'd come in and you'd think, well, where are all the bodies? Can it go on the body? Yes, it could go on the body. Um, And then there were beautiful publications that complemented it where you would see people of different ages and backgrounds wearing these Miyake clothes or also photographers who took pictures of them.
0: This takes us to the 90s when he releases perhaps his his signature commercial collection, Pleats Please. What's the significance of that moment, that collection?
1: Well, I think Pleats Please also was starting to, there's several different things on Pleats Please. I think one of them was also looking at this sort of animation, animation of garments, and, and having this sort of liveliness where pleats gave Miyake this incredible palette of getting movement and shifting form. So rather than having a static, as someone moved, you actually, the garment would move with you. So it started to have this very different impact on, again, how we view a garment and not being able to control it, if that makes sense.
0: Well, and a wonderful counterpoint, though, in that movement to the, the sort of rigidity of the form of the pleat. It's... Uh... There's a nice duality in those things.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Because pleading, you're controlling something. <laughs> and you nice. actually let it, you know, bounce out. It also provided, again, going back to the retail environment, you could concertina. Some of the most famous ones, you can concertina down. So it's just a round, round, flat shape. And then it springs up like a jack-in-the-box. So you've got this incredible sense of, of movement and also colours Uh, Miyake has always experimented with ranges of colours Um, and I think that's where, again, this liveliness in really quite, you know, um, intense colours Um, and then going further with pleating by putting pattern on pleating. Uh, So you actually have a visual image on top of these colours and, again, what happens when that moves. So for wearers, they would be shifting all the time. It's not just having mm. it in an exhibition where you can do all sorts of clever things in hanging it and doing whatever, but when it's on a body because the importance, and I don't want to take away from the importance of wearing because that's, that's really where Miyake was from. Exhibition practice was something that invited other people in to know more about what he was trying to do, what the studio was trying to do. But certainly for the wearer, these were very simple garments that could easily be looked after um, and you just put them on and suddenly you were like a walking sculpture.
0: Well, that simplicity is an interesting thing, As much as we talk about him in this this high design sense, I mean, his intent, well, was not to be uh, an elite figure. His intent was to be accessible.
1: Exactly, exactly. So this is where, so this is this always trying to find a form that could be for everybody. So again, the pleated garments, you know, you shape, you could put on weight, they'd expand. Different heights didn't matter, you know. It 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 was it was this way of trying to get a more universal form of clothing. Um, also experimenting uh, with materials that perhaps were easier to look after. Uh, thinking about longevity, trying to sort of test some of those things, those universals that we have, and certainly now in circular design, we're always seeking, you know, how can we get longevity out of something will it last will it have that enduring quality and certainly that's certainly at this stage you know Miyake is actually dealing with a lot of that.
0: Uh, you'll know this word uh, Robin because I, I, I can't bring it to mind but it's, it's a word which in Japanese and, and, and Miyake uses this is, is both for clothing and happiness.
1: Uh, yeah now <laughs> you're gonna you're going test me there in terms <laughs> of clothing and happiness. I know what he uses for a piece of cloth. APOC is his his, his most famous way of of looking at clothing through a piece of cloth.
0: A wonderful quote, Robin, from Miyake, which I think goes to his, oh, something of his guiding philosophy. He says, his clothing means in Japanese haifuku. Then haifuku means happiness. And probably I am trying to make haifuku happiness for the people and for myself. That's a beautiful ambition, Robin.
1: I think so. And I I think it comes from, a good place. It's not the marketing people doing that for him. So I think this is also where going back to de- as a designer, you know, always seeking that aspiration of how he could, you know, build this community that could actually enjoy these clo- this clothing. And that's why also in exhibition practice, it did bring incredible happiness when people visited those exhibitions. Um, the works have this way of, of people... You know, want to have conversations around them, and they do ignite certain things. And I think that's 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 probably one of the things that Miyake um, re- really brought to the fore: those sort of conversations about clothing, and also the playfulness for both a wearer and also a viewer.
0: Which changes design culture both in in Japan and, and the West in in fundamental ways.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and then and then also trying to to reduce down, um, you know, h- how you make something. So, you know, often, um, you know, couturiers and great fashion designers are, are sort of praised for the intricacies of their designs and all the detail. And, you know, I Miyake mean, was detailed, but he was always trying to par it down. How could he, you know, um, minimise various steps within something? And that's what I mentioned before, APOC piece of cloth, mm. which um, was a very famous collaboration with Da Fujiwara, which again was looking at this technology where you used industrial knitting machine or a weaving machine on a computer and you could just create the garment with the push of the button. It would come out in a certain length and you just chop it off <laughs> where you wanted it to stop. So, Again, when you think of that sort of that, that mystique around making processes and, and especially often, you know, fashion can labour this, in, in you know, with haute couture, the number of stitches, the number of hours, all those sorts of things, they suddenly you have this thing which is like you push the button, there it is, you know, as soon as you get to the length you want, you cut it off. Um, so I think in terms of starting to shift, um, you know, how we think about making. Uh, it doesn't take away from the, the incredible, you know, technologies or the actual aesthetic of the piece. But it does start to think about, you know, waste. It does start to think about um, how you could go into a boutique, push a button, and you could just create that rather than having this surplus stock. So, again, changing what retail might look like
0: perhaps a, a piece of cloth, a suitable, a suitable epigraph. Robin, thank you. Beautiful to spend some time in this, this great man's legacy.
1: And thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Robin Healy, a former curator in fashion at NGA and NGV, uh, now at RMIT University as Deputy Vice Chancellor of Learning and Teaching and head there of the School of Fashion and Textiles. And this is Blueprint think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to
1: play ABCRN.